you are what you eat. That was the conclusion American nutritionist Victor Lindlar made in his popular 1942 book of the same title. I trust you've heard that before in childhood education classes and United States Navy fitness and education briefings. Uh, the point is simple enough and widespread enough. What we consume impacts how we act. Uh, so even if some of Victor Lindlar's kind of most outrageous conclusions are now rejected, uh, most people would agree, right, that, that what we take in, it influences what we put out. And if that's true nutritionally, we find it doubly confirmed with the information and the opinions that we consume, right? Especially with the advent of social media, never before have we been able to silo our news and information along such partisan and ideological lines. And, and so the result has been predictable. The opinions we take in impact the ways we act. If you show me someone's social media posts, I would be quite happy to tell you the social media news they take in, the opinions, the people they follow. You are what you listen to. Or better yet, you are who you listen to. And it's because we are conformed to the teaching we take in that the Lord has such strong words for the priests in Malachi's day. He rebukes Israel's spiritual leaders for the way they have fed his people with fake news, as it were, faithless and false teaching. So if you have a Bible, let me encourage you to turn to Malachi chapter 2. Malachi is the last book in the Old Testament, uh, written around 460 B.C. The context of Malachi's preaching is one of disillusionment and disappointment. Uh, God's people feel let down by none other than God himself. You see, in 2000 B.C., the Lord called a man named Abraham and gave to him all kinds of amazing promises. Uh, he especially promised Abraham land, seed, and blessing. And so it was that the Lord miraculously raised up an offspring for Abraham and Sarah. Uh, then he gave this, this son Isaac uh, another son, and Jacob had 12 sons. And that's the group that went down and had a vacation in Egypt that turned into a really bad vacation when they got enslaved in Egypt. Around 1400 BC, the Lord miraculously delivered his people through the 10 plagues, the Passover, the Red Sea crossing. And he covenanted that his, he, he committed and promised to be their God. And they would be his people. And he would bless them if only they would obey his voice. Over the course of Israel shows that for hundreds of years, Israel spurned the Lord's commandments. They rebelled for centuries and centuries, though the Lord had sent them prophets and warnings and promises and judgments, yet they did not repent. So the Lord began covenantally removing his blessings, removing his presence, as it were, and the curses of the covenant fell. This culminated in 586 when the Lord raised up the Babylonians to destroy the city of Jerusalem and carry the Jews into slavery once more. Israel's sin, like Adam's sin, had disqualified them from dwelling in God's presence, in God's blessed land. And yet, because God is so good and so gracious and loving and forgiving, he began to work a new exodus. Uh, the Lord began bringing his people back to the promised land. Through the Persian king Cyrus, a decree went out. The Jews could go back home. God was restoring the nation as it were. 
And so the Jews began rebuilding Jerusalem with the promise of God's help and presence. But in Malachi's time, uh, things were not exactly going as Israel hoped. Sure, they were back in the promised land, but God's glorious presence seemed notably absent. The temple paled in comparison with the former one. The son of David wasn't ruling a global kingdom. Judah was an insignificant province in the vast Persian empire. Was this really all that God would do for his people? I mean, he said that he loved them. Where was the evidence? This is the context in which the Lord raised up Malachi to preach. At the beginning of chapter one, we saw the Lord reaffirm his love for them, for the nation of Israel. Uh, Yet Israel doubted his love. And and the evidence of that doubt was what we saw last week. Their their half-hearted and reluctant and begrudging worship. They were checking the boxes, uh, but it was only external show. And so we come to our passage this morning in Malachi 2, verses 1 to 9. We won't have any subsections. We're just kind of going to walk through it. But the main idea of our passage is simply this. God desires obedient priests who will faithfully live and teach his word. God desires obedient priests who will faithfully live and teach his word. So read with me. Malachi 2, beginning in verse 1. And now, O priests, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, then I will send the curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them because you do not lay it to heart. Behold, I will rebuke your offspring. And spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings, and you shall be taken away with it. So shall you know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned many from iniquity. For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and the people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi, says the Lord of hosts. And so I make you despised and abased before all the people, inasmuch as you do not keep my ways, but show partiality in your instruction. Amen. Well, just as we saw last week's passage was addressed to Israel's priests. So verse one indicates that God is again speaking to them as the spiritual leaders in the community of faith. They have a special responsibility Uh, It's naturally, as the leaders, God wants to talk to them. And so he says, if you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart to give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon you. Notice how God begins. Like a good parent, the Lord highlights for the priests the most important thing. Uh, Like a good parent, the Lord knows that his children can be prone 
at times, hypothetically, do not take his words to heart. Uh, Israel might nod their heads, say that, oh, yes, yes, we understand. Promise to be obedient. And yet, like disobedient children, they fail to really take God's word to heart. And so the Lord says to them, this is the, the most important thing. You must give honor to my name. Uh, this circles back to the first question the Lord had asked the priests uh, in chapter 1, verse 6. Remember, God said, a son honors his father. If then I am a father, where is my honor? Uh, to honor someone is to give them the reverence and respect that they deserve. So children should honor their parents and citizens should honor governments and kings and all those in high places because those are our legitimate authorities because they are in positions that are worthy of honor. And that's God's people and especially his priests, right? They should honor their God for he is the highest authority. He is the most worthy of our honor and devotion. To give honor to the Lord's name is, as we've seen in, in chapter one, uh, to fear him, to treat him as though he really is who he says he is. He is the Lord. He is the great I am. He is Yahweh. We're not to treat God as a small local deputy deity, a small God worthy of small amounts of honor. No, we're to recognize him as the all-great, all-good, gracious, holy, and high, gentle, and mighty, eternal, and compassionate, righteous, and loving God. Now, now why is this the command that the Lord highlights for his people, for the priests? Why does he single out this one duty, right? I mean, like, they're getting lots of things wrong. Why does he say, you need to honor my name? Well, it's because that the honoring of God's name, the, the fearing of his name, that was the language used last week in chapter one, it's foundational to our relationship with the Lord. The way that you honor God's name, all obediences flow out of that and all disobediences run counter to it. Right? This is why Proverbs says, the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. That is, if you get that right, if you honor God rightly, well, then you've got like a really good framework for evaluating everything else in life. Uh, there are something like 635 laws in the Torah, okay? And if you will set it in your heart to honor the Lord, yeah, those are just details that you'll figure out. But the most important thing is that you would honor God, make him the most important reality in your life. Everything else are downstream details of your fundamental commitment to honor God's name. That's what the Lord was calling these priests to. So what does it mean for God to say in the middle of verse two, if you don't give honor to my name, then I will send the curse upon you and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I've already cursed them. Well, to understand this, we, we've got to understand the job description of a priest as priests, as a descendant of Aaron, they were to be the mediators between God and man. God and Israel. That, that is, Israel couldn't approach a holy God on their own. They needed someone to go between God and themselves. They needed a sacrifice to atone for their sins. 
They needed to be sanctified to approach God's presence. They needed to be taught God's law. And so the priest would help uh, purify the, the worshiper and help the worshiper offer his or her sacrifice. And then as the climactic and final act of worship, the priest would speak a blessing, a benediction, a eulogy over the individual. Uh, so God had promised to bless those who bring sacrifices to him, those who worship him. Now that the individual Israelite had completed this act of worship, the priest stood in the place of God, as it were, and spoke God's promised blessings over them, right? God said he'd bless those who do this. You've done this, so congratulations. God will bless you. That's what the priest's job was to do. It was the most exalted, important blessing that any Israelite could receive from the priest and specifically, the most important and exalted of the important and exalted blessings was the one from number six, the Aaronic blessing. All right, so this is, this is really crucial. Just, you can listen or turn there, but just listen. In number six, 23 to 26, we read, the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his sons saying, thus you shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. This is one of the most important paragraphs in the entire Old Testament. Uh, you could say it's a summary of God's covenant blessings that he's promised to his people. So like all the good things he has in store for them, is summarized in this priestly blessing. In effect, when the priest would bless the worshiper, the priest would say, may the Lord bless you and keep you in his love. May his presence sustain and preserve you. May he be gracious to you and forgive you despite your sins. May you know him and his smile. May you have peace. And the result of the sons of Aaron, the priests, pronouncing this blessing upon the people. Number 627, the very next verse of number six. So shall the priests put my name upon the people of Israel and I will bless them. Do, do you see what's going on here? In short, this, this blessing, this ironic blessing is an exposition and an application of the Lord's name to the Lord's people. By means of this priestly blessing, Yahweh's name would be placed upon and associated with Israel, thus leading to blessing. Uh, so God is the ever-blessed, ever-blessing being. And now that you've got his name on you, you know, presto, you will be blessed. Because you're with God. Right? There are like places that you can't get in, right? But if you know a VIP, like you can get in on that. There are places of blessing that you cannot get in on unless you're with God. And when the ironic blessing, priestly blessing comes, oh, the Lord's face shines upon you. You get blessing because you're with the Lord. And so here's what's so crazy about Malachi 2. What was Israel's chief sin? They were not fearing, not honoring God's name. And in doing so, they were essentially saying, we don't want God. 
Uh, we don't like him. We don't like the way he's treating us. We don't like the way he's not keeping his promises. We're not going to honor his name. We're going to despise it, even if unintentionally. And friends, if you don't have God, well, you don't have his blessings. He is the source of all happiness and delight. He is the one who gives good gifts to his children. In despising God's name, they've cut themselves off from the source of blessing. And so when the Lord says, I will curse your blessing, he's basically saying, fine, fine. You say you don't want me around. And so it will be. If you don't enjoy and desire my presence, so be it. Your blessing will be no blessing. It will instead be a curse. Israel's a little bit like the child who hates his family and then deserts mom and dad, but still wants the car and the credit cards and the birthday presents and, you know, all the benefits, right? They're like, we don't like your name. We don't, we're going to dishonor you, but oh yeah, yeah, keep giving us blessing. And the Lord's like, that's just not how it works. I, I'm a father and you, you're dishonoring me. Uh, the curse is specifically a reference to Deuteronomy 28, what we've considered uh, in the summary of Israel. Israel's history, when Moses listed the curses of the covenant, the curses which ultimately culminated in the exile to Babylon. And so it's so shocking and saddening about verse two is that Israel still hasn't learned their lesson. They had hundreds of years of disobedience and then the absolute worst thing happened like ISIS came and invaded and carried them off into exile. It was that traumatic and awful. They, they're slaves for 70, do you mean they came out of slavery out of Egypt. That was the whole thing for rejoicing. Praise the Lord, we're not slaves anymore. Oh no, we're slaves again. Because of our sin, the curses of the covenant fell. And so when the Lord restores them from Babylon, brings them back to Jerusalem, affects a new exodus, you're thinking, okay, like surely they learned their lesson. Surely they learned it's better to obey. That God is worthy of their worship and praise and adoration. And yet, it is not the case. God's desire has always been to bless his people. Uh, do you remember in Genesis 1, uh, verse 26, in the image of God, God created them, male and female, he created them. Genesis 1, verse 27, and God blessed them. The very first thing God does when he creates his people is he blesses Adam and Eve. And then he says, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. So it wasn't, hey, Israel, if you, or Adam, if you obey, you might get blessing. No, God blessed Adam. And then said, now obey out of that blessing. Well, you know what happened. Adam and Eve sinned. And then the Lord brings curses, right? He says to the serpent, cursed are you above all livestock because you have done this. And he says to Adam, cursed is the ground because you have done this. And then the Lord starts over with Noah. And in Genesis 9, the Lord says to Noah, uh, he, it says he blessed Noah and said, be fruitful, multiply, and fill the earth. Noah's like a new Adam. Oh, great. Praise God. He receives blessing. But then Noah sins and his son sins. So that Genesis 9 reads, cursed be Canaan. Uh, again, God's people can't obey him. They fail and bring curse. And then you get Israel, this kind of like 
uh, corporate entity. God blesses them, and then they just end up getting with the curses. And so maybe you think like, okay, they're finally going to get it, this second shot now that they're back in the land. But heresy in Malachi too, the curse is still coming upon them. Brothers and sisters, this is what we are like in our natural state. We, all of us, sin and deserve God's curse. We deserve God's judgment. Uh, there is no hope, even as we sang in Rock of Ages, that the labors of our hands could fulfill the law's demands. Uh, we need someone to absorb God's curse for us and bring us into blessing. For Israel, they've not learned their lesson. And so the Lord says in verse 3, Behold, I will rebuke your offspring and spread dung on your faces, the dung of your offerings. Uh, frankly, the, the words are jarring. I wonder if you're like me and you sometimes have too reserved a view of God. I'm like, God is really upset here. Uh, he's angry. He hates sin. He's not a robot. These priests have been despising and dishonoring his name. They've treated him shamefully, shamefully, and so now they too will be treated shamefully. The Lord is disciplining his people, these priests. And yet his discipline is for their restoration and renewal. Uh, that's what verse 4 shows us, right? So, that is by this judgment that I'm doing, by this discipline that I'm going to bring upon you, so shall you know that I've sent this command to you, that my covenant with Levi may stand. That is, God was not yet planning on taking away the priesthood from the Levites. Now, the goal in God's discipline was their repentance, right? God wanted to uphold the covenant with Levi, uh, wherein God promised that Levi's descendants would be a perpetual priesthood before the Lord. Uh, but of course, for the Lord, for God to restore them to covenant fidelity, the priests had to understand uh, what God was practically calling them to. That, that's what verses five to seven show us. Uh, we get the portrait of a faithful priest. The Lord is here reflecting on the life and ministry of Levi and specifically his descendant Aaron, the brother of Moses, and specifically Aaron's grandson Phineas. You can read more about Phineas's actions in Numbers 25. That's some of the background to some of the things we read here. And so in verse 5, it says, My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Friends, this is kind of the big picture. It's what we've seen. It's the, the most important realities. God highlights the results of the covenant, life and peace. God gave life to these priests physically. Every one of us, we're dependent creatures, right? We, we need food and air and water and shelter. But God has life in and of himself. He's not dependent on anything outside of him for existence. And so he's perfectly suited to give life to whomever he wills. And God also gave peace to Levi. This is what Adam and Eve first enjoyed. Shalom. What we long for and look forward to in the new heavens and new earth. Uh, biblically, shalom refers to wholeness and wellness, completeness, peace, prosperity, tranquility, harmony. It is a state of perfect rest. 
I praise be to God for those in Christ. We now have peace with God. It's what Jesus has purchased for us. Romans 5.1 states, therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God. Life and peace were the blessed benefits that Levi enjoyed in covenant relationship with God. And the basis for these results was what we see in the second half of verse 5. Just as the Lord had commanded the priest in verse 2 to honor his name, so Levi's most fundamental quality is that he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. Now, now we've talked about this a bit last week, this week, uh, last Sunday night as well. What does it mean to fear the Lord? It's probably the central theme in the book of Malachi. We should note that when God calls us to fear him, he's not fundamentally calling us to be afraid of him. Okay, so you remember back in the Garden of Eden, when Adam and Eve sinned, they run and hide, and Adam explicitly says, he says, it was because I was afraid. That's not the kind of relationship that God wants us to have with him. Or we see in Exodus 20, at the giving of the Ten Commandments, you know, at Mount Sinai, there's law, there's the thunder and the lightning and the smoke and the fire and the trumpets. And so the Israelites are terrified and Moses comes to them and he says, do not be afraid for God has come to test you that the fear of him might be before you. Okay, so there, there's a kind of fear of God that we shouldn't have, that Adam had, that the Israelites had, but then there's a kind of fear that we should have. So, so what is it? To fear God, the kind of fear of God that we're supposed to have, is an awe-filled, trembling, and overwhelmed response of love and admiration for all that God is. Uh, to fear God is to act as if he is the most important reality in the universe. Because he is. We are to live as if we are ever before him. Because we are. He wants us to tremble before him. To fear the Lord is a kind of wholehearted apprehension of God's gravitas. Uh, to fear God is to know the wonder of his glory and the weight of his grace. Uh, the 17th century pastor William Ames commented, the principal cause of our fear is not any evil in which, uh, not any evil which we are in danger of, but the excellent perfections of God. The principal cause of our fear is not any evil which we are in danger of, but the excellent perfections of God. And, and thus fearing God, fearing the Lord is not the opposite of loving God. It's part and parcel of the same thing. You know, in light of God's revelation, a fearful love and a loving fear is the only appropriate response to who God is. Like God's not a puppy, right? When we say, oh, I love, you know, this little chihuahua, I hope you mean something different when you say, I love God. God is great and glorious. Uh, one author states it, the living God is infinitely perfect and quintessentially overwhelmingly beautiful in every way. His righteousness, his graciousness, his majesty, his mercy, his all. 
And so we don't love him aright if our love is not a trembling, overwhelmed, and fearful love. Uh, So brothers and sisters, the, the fear of the Lord is not this gloomy or morose thing. You know, sometimes people talk about it that way, like, oh, you know, we need to instill the fear of God in someone. Well, okay, kind of, if by that you mean a, a, an apprehension and a respect for all that God is, like, yes, he should be taken seriously. But, but we want people to love God and fear him and fear him and love him. Uh, Isaiah 11 describes the coming Messiah as the spirit of the Lord shall rest upon him, the spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. His delight shall be in the fear of the Lord. Okay, guys, so if Jesus, who is sinless and has no reason to fear judgment, right? He has no reason to be afraid. If he fears God, well, then we should too. If he delights to fear God's name, well, then we can too. I quoted this Spurgeon quote last Sunday night, but it's too good not to use again. Uh, Believers, he said, are to adore and worship the living God with a joyful, tender fear, which both lays us low and lifts us up very high. For never do we seem to be nearer to heaven's golden throne than when our spirit gives itself up to worship him whom it does not see, but in whose realized presence it trembles with sacred delight. Friends, isn't this your experience? Uh, When you've encountered God afresh in his word, whether in your morning devotions or perhaps through preaching, isn't your deepest joy a trembling joy? Uh, When singing God's praises or in private prayer, haven't you been awestruck by God's love and his power? A biblical fear of the Lord is a happy, wonder-filled thing. That's what the Lord is reminding the priest that Levi had. But, but what does that look like in practice? I mean, like, what does that look like? How, how do we live out the fear of the Lord? How do the priests live out? What should they do differently? Well, that's what verses six and seven show us. Verse six says, true instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness and he turned many from iniquity. What does it mean to take God seriously? It means to take his word seriously. It means the priest would be more committed to his word than their word, right? True instruction was in his mouth and no wrong was found on his lips. That word instruction is also translated Torah or law. Uh, Levi was committed to God's word. And this is so important because God has always ruled his people through his word. It was the case with Adam and Abraham and Israel and the Lord Jesus and the church. Therefore, the leaders of God's people must be unashamedly committed to this one thing as the source of their authority and life and legitimacy, God's word. Without God's word, God's leaders are imposters. 
You know, for the priests in ancient Israel, God had called them to be teachers of his word. Levi was not to say, oh, I wonder what I should tell the people. His job was not creativity, but faithfulness and fidelity. To fear God is to take his word seriously. Did you notice in Psalm 19, it's saying like the rules of the Lord are true, the precepts, the word, and then it says the fear of the Lord is clean. Well, okay, you're talking about the Bible. You're talking about God's word. Why, David, did you insert the fear of the Lord in there? Well, because to fear God is to take his word seriously. Because God's law is true. True instruction was in his mouth. Anything Levi said on his own authority, you know, it might be true. But how would you even know? Other than judging it according to and against the standard of God's instruction. It is always true. Today, the closest equivalence to the teaching office that the priests enjoyed uh, is occupied by pastors. Now, pastors are not priests, okay? Like, super duper important. Pastors do not mediate between you and God. So you can pray to God right now if you're a Christian. You don't need me. Uh, we believe that Jesus is our high priest. Jesus is the one who intercedes for us to God, who mediates between God and man. Pastors are shepherd teachers, as Ephesians 4 describes them. They feed the sheep with God's word and they lead them to green pastures. And like Levi, pastors are to be committed to God's instruction, lest iniquity and falsehood be on their lips. So Trinity Church of Bedford, this is why we're committed to expositional preaching. It's because of what we read in 2 Timothy 4. Uh, Paul doesn't tell Timothy Preach, my man. Let's hear what you have got to say. Uh, you're a good public speaker. Wow us with your dazzling rhetorical abilities. No, he says preach the word because it's God's word that God's people need to hear. And so, brothers and sisters, the main diet of any church should be the regular exposition of God's word. Uh, where the point of the passage is the point of the sermon. Topical series can be great and helpful in small dosage. In a topical series, the preacher says, uh, what do I want to talk about? And then he goes and preaches on that. But that leaves the door open for false teachers, like the priest in Malachi's day, to twist the scriptures and run rampant with their own ideas and agendas. Right? The benefit of walking through books of the Bible is that God sets the agenda. Right? Like He just tells us what to talk about. So today we're talking about Malachi 2, because that's after Malachi 1. And then next week we'll be in Malachi 3. I I'm just not insightful or funny or godly or wise enough to determine what you guys need to hear about, what I need to hear from. So we're going to trust God that he knows what we should talk about, and, and again, just going through books of the Bible, it forces us to tackle the topics that we might not ordinarily want to talk about, right? It means we can't avoid it. And, and so Trinity Church of Bedford, members of Trinity, uh, I've said this before and I'll say it again. You should fire me if I start preaching anything other than God's word. For the love of your own souls, 
and the love of your family members, for the love of your neighbors who you're trying to evangelize and invite to church, for your love for me, and ultimately because of your love for Christ. Work and pray to ensure that God's word is always the foundation of all that we teach here at Trinity. In verse six, Levi is also commended because he walked with me in peace and uprightness. Thank you, brother. I appreciate that. That is, Levi didn't just talk the talk, right? He, he walked the walk. He actually lived it out. He wasn't a hypocrite, like so many in Malachi's day, and in Jesus's day, and in our own day. So, so the teachers of God's word, of God's people, can't just say, you know, do as I do, or do as I say, not as I do. I just worry about the whole teaching thing. I don't worry about living it out. Uh, no, that's not how it works. So for example, in 1 Timothy 3, Paul gives tons of qualifications for pastors, about 13 of them. There is only one competency to pastors, one skill or ability he must have. A pastor must be able to teach. That's what we're going to talk about tonight in our evening service. But everything else is a character qualification because pastor teachers are meant to be examples. That's how Paul can tell the young pastor Timothy, set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, and purity. And he tells the Philippians, what you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things. Brothers and sisters, that's the kind of godly example that God expects pastor teachers to set. Uh, for many of you, this will not be the last church you're part of because the Lord will bring you to Utah or California or you'll, for any number of reasons, this might not be the last church for people in this room. Those are the types of pastors you should be looking for people that you can learn from them and receive from them and hear and see in their lives and you can practice those things. Uh, pray for me. Pray that that would be true for my own life in ministry. Pray for Dave and Mark as we consider them as elder candidates, that, that would be true of their lives and their ministries. Uh, it is a weighty and wonderful thing to set an example. And the result of this biblical speech and biblical living from Levi was incredible. I mean, just look at that last phrase in verse six. This is why the stakes are so high. Do you see what it says? He turned many from iniquity. What a glorious statement. He turned many from iniquity. Friends, wouldn't you like that on your headstone one day? Wouldn't that be a great thing to be said about you in your eulogy? She turned many from iniquity through her prayers and her speech and her love and her service. She turned many from the paths of sin. Beloved, I don't know what goals you've set for yourself in 2023. I don't know what professional and personal and academic and financial familial goals you may seek. I can promise you that on the last day, you will be glad if this is said of you. He turned many from iniquity. Pastors specifically are to have this kind of ministry in the New Testament. Uh, so Paul wrote to Timothy. Again, it's almost really similar language. Listen to this. Paul told Timothy, 
keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by so doing, you will save both yourself and your hearers. Wow. It is really important that pastors persist in being watchful over their life and their doctrine because their hearers may or may not obtain salvation, depending on whether or not they persist in this. Again, reasons to pray. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your teachers. And so in verse 7, the Lord rounds off the traits of an obedient priest. We read, for the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth, for he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. Friends, the priest can't teach God's law if they don't know God's instruction. That's why he needs to guard knowledge. That's why priests need to study the scriptures. That's why we send pastors to seminary. So they can teach it accurately and faithfully and truthfully to God's people. For he is a messenger of the Lord of hosts. Uh, Notice that he is God's messenger. The priest isn't supposed to come with his own message. He's not supposed to come with the king's message to drum up political support. He's not supposed to come with the people's message, tickling their ears, proclaiming what they want to hear. No, people will seek his instruction when they know that he will not parrot back their own opinions, for he is a messenger from God. This is what the priests were supposed to be. This is what Levi was. But in verse 8, we see the contrast. Look there. But you have turned aside from the way. You have caused many to stumble by your instruction. Friends, this is awful. I mean, personally, these priests had turned away from the straight and narrow. They're no longer walking according to God's paths. They walked according to their own way, in their own wisdom, to their own destruction. But it gets worse than that. It's one thing to lead yourself to hell. It's even worse to lead others there. Yeah, that's what the Lord says. While Levi turned many from iniquity, these priests cause many to stumble. It's that same kind of stumbling we talk about in our benediction, right? Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling, from falling away from the Lord. These priests caused many to stumble, That is, there were people who were going to make it. And yet, you have caused them to fall away. That is a terrifying thought. Your corrupt teaching has been so insidious and deceitful, so damaging, that those who were walking well have stumbled. Friends, God is sovereign, make no mistake, but we are responsible. Make no mistake. These priests are responsible for their actions. This is what Jesus rebukes in Matthew 23. When he states, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut the kingdom of heaven in people's faces. For you neither enter yourself nor allow those who would enter to go in. Friends, it is an almost unspeakable evil 
to bear the name of Christ, yet teach contrary to God's word. And this is not just like one slip of the tongue, right? Uh, This is not an imperfect ministry. Everyone has that. But to teach so wrongly that it ends up damning its listeners. This is why Jesus and Paul have such harsh words against this kind of ministry. Jesus says in Mark 9, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me, so he's talking about Christians, not just kids, but Christians. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Or Paul says in Galatians 1, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one you received, let him be accursed. Friends, it is a sobering thought that in our day, there are pastors and churches and denominations and publishing houses and websites and conference speakers and authors who will one day stand before the judgment seat of Christ and answer for their misleading, damnable teaching. For those who promote the prosperity gospel, for those who promote racism and ethnic violence under the banner of Christ, for those who deny that Christians must repent of their sins, but they can live openly in rebellion and transgression, Uh, to any who teach people to depend upon their own good works for salvation, for those who cause many to stumble, there will be hell to pay. And so, brothers and sisters, I trust this sobers you. Uh, Rarely do people set out to be heretics, to teach false doctrine that damns, and yet it happens. That's why pastors need to persist in keeping a close watch so that they would save their hearers and not damn them. The problem, according to the end of verse 9, is that these priests do not keep my ways, but show partiality in their instruction. Literally, that phrase, show partiality, is they regard the face when teaching. Okay, so when I'm preaching, I'm looking at your faces, and I can kind of see if you're happy or sad or angry at me. These priests, they wanted people to like them. They wanted the rich to favor them at the expense of the poor. They desired the esteem and admiration of the educated. They regarded the powerful instead of teaching faithfully the word of truth. In Malachi's day, the Lord says in verses eight and nine, you have corrupted the covenant of Levi, and so I make you despised and abased abased before all the people. Just as the priests in chapter one, verse six, had despised God's name, so now they will be despised. And it's no less than they deserved. And so brothers and sisters, make no mistake. Bad priests ruin everything. That's why we need a better priest. That's why we need Jesus. Though the Levitical priests offered daily sacrifices on behalf of Israel and they taught the people, the Lord Jesus is our great high priest who has offered once and for all his finished sacrifice, that of his own life. Uh, While the Levitical priests departed from God's ways, Jesus truly walked with God in peace and uprightness. You know, Jesus perfectly honored God's name and lived for God's glory. Jesus' own opponent stated in Mark 12, teacher, we know that you are true and do not care about anyone's opinion for you do not regard people's faces. 
but truly teach the way of God. And yet this king, this priest, righteous though he was, he went to the cross and there he absorbed the curses of the covenant, the judgment and wrath that we deserve for our sin. He was cut off from the land of the living. And he did all this so that you might enjoy God's blessing. So that the ironic blessing that God would bless you and show you favor and peace and his, his countenance would be lifted up upon you. Guys, every time that's dependent upon our actions, whether it's Adam or Noah or Israel 1.0 or Israel 2.0, they fail. Now we can enjoy God's blessing and his favor and his presence and his smile because of Christ, because of his life and death and resurrection. So that if you will believe upon Christ, you will be united to him and all that was true of him becomes true of you. As he was raised to newness of life, so you too will be. As he enjoys peace with God, so too will you on the basis of Christ and his finished work. Friend, if you've not trusted in Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, do so today. Because Christian, now that you are united to Christ, now that he is your great high priest, you know, you get a job description. We read about this earlier in our assurance of pardon. Now you are a priest of God. First Peter 2 describes the church as a royal priesthood. You see, now we are called to mediate God's presence. Uh, Not that we can intercede for people the way that the Levitical priest did, not the way Jesus did, but we offer up prayers and supplications to God. And just as the Levitical priests were to teach God's word, you, Christian, are a royal, Christians, you are a royal priesthood, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. So Christian, God called you to have a teaching ministry, to have a, a proclamation ministry, like the Levitical priests. God saved you so that you will proclaim, proclaim his goodness, proclaim his love, proclaim his grace in Christ. And as we seek by the grace of God to fear God's name and live as if he is the most important reality in all the universe, because he is, we do so in the presence of our blessed God. Let's pray.